Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. And Linkshus, the place where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Jai. Hi. Um, maybe JJ is easier. Hi, uh, yeah. <laughs> Hi, JJ. How are you doing? Good, good. Thanks. We are now in Airbnb APEC headquarters, right? Yeah, this is yeah. the APEC headquarters here in Singapore. It's a pretty early morning, so I managed to get JJ to come on the show to talk about Airbnb in general. So I kind of saw before that, I also wanted to understand uh, JJ's early career. What got you to Airbnb before? Yeah, so I started my career actually in engineering. I was a computer engineer. I went on to become a product manager before doing a bit of a switch in course and uh, becoming a management consultant after MBA. So I was in McKinsey doing tech and telco consulting for a bunch of years, spending about a year each in, in each of the Southeast Asia countries uh, working with uh, companies around there. So from there, when uh, Airbnb was looking for someone to lead up the Southeast Asia operations, they, they, we got in touch and uh, you know, I had heard of Airbnb and used them at that point in time. And so I was, yeah, it wasn't so clear two and a half years back, but I thought it was a great opportunity and I jumped on board. It's been a great ride ever since. So subsequently, you saw, uh, started off Airbnb in the APEC region. How was the initial days of Airbnb APEC look like? So the good part about it is that when I got on board, we had been a platform that operated for a few years already. So because it's a global platform, anyone around the world could, could list their space. But what we found in Asia is that the quality of the hosts or what they put online weren't so good. So the first thing we had to really quickly do was to improve the quality of photos, how they price their apartments and homes and descriptions. And that's what we set out to do in the early days. Mm. Just to help the audience to understand Airbnb better, I know we just went on talking about Airbnb. Um, can you just kind of give us an introduction of the company, the concept of the company and the business model that it runs on? Sure. Quite, quite simply, Airbnb is a, a website or app where you can go online and you can book a home anywhere around the world to stay in uh, when you travel. So it's, you know, we try to make it as easy for you to book a home as it is to book a hotel. We have about 1 million properties around the world right now in 190 countries. Oh, okay. In APEC specifically, which countries are y'all have coverage in so far? Singapore? We have hosts and travelers from almost all countries in Asia. Uh, the countries where we find a lot of traction are in Singapore actually, there's a lot of travelers in uh, Korea, in uh, Japan, uh, increasingly China as well, a lot of travelers using Airbnb in the region. And as for destinations, uh, it's not surprising, places like Bangkok, Bali, Tokyo are uh, popular popular destinations. Mm. So now you have a full office and then do you start to have satellite office even within the, sort of the region itself? Yeah, so we actually have uh, a few other offices. We are established in Seoul. We have an office in Seoul in uh, Tokyo, in Sydney as well in Delhi right now. Mm. Uh, but this remains our hub for the region where most uh, most of the team is based. So coming back to, because we are in Asia, right? Are there actually very significant localization of Airbnb in Asia? I mean, what are the kind of interesting adaptations that you all have done? Maybe some examples on Airbnb to improve its quality of service because whenever I hear of Airbnb, I understand service quality is very important. I've stayed in one myself in San Francisco. Great. Yeah, what, what we find is uh, like one of the big things for uh, adapting the product uh, typically falls under the category of 
payment or payment payout related issues. Because we're a two-sided marketplace, we need to process payments in. That's relatively simple to some extent, but even then we had to do some work around like adapting to take um, new payment methods and also payment currencies. Right? So for China, for example, payment methods like UnionPay, we have to sort of open that up. And the other one is actually more interesting is really around the payout. So being able to pay out quickly, uh, PayPal is a great, great option, but we find that like users, you know, prefer a, a variety of it. So we have everything from Western Union to bank transfer, local bank transfers as well. Mm. Do you find that actually local businesses tend to favor their kind of uh, local pay? I mean, this is kind of a big issue within Asia itself, right? Mm-hmm. That usually people take on a payment in payments, they don't actually use PayPal. PayPal is not really universally used yeah. within the region itself. Coming into Asia, one of the first things we realized is that the, the fragmentation of the different preferred payout methods and payment methods are a lot more than say in Europe or in the US. So we have to address it country by country. So some countries would, you know, PayPal works fine, there's no issues. Or some countries actually we find that PayPal actually has quite a lot of our regulatory requirements. You know, the take up is not so great. Therefore, we, can, we need to find things like uh, local bank transfers, for example. Mm. And we find partners to, to do that for us. With mm. us. I, I guess one of the interesting things on Airbnb is kind of uh, related to the travel industry. So you deal with tourists from all over the world. How much language localization actually plays a part in the Airbnb? For example, you have Seoul, I presume they speak Korean. How important is internationalization? So we, we got that started even even before I had joined the, the, the fortunately the team had the product team in the US had already thought of this. Um, we set up the product pretty well such that like we can we actually have a way to sort of update and translate to the 20 over languages within 24 to 48 hours. So we set up the site in uh, one language in English and we have a team of translators around the world mm. that would actually pick up all the new stuff that comes on board that needs to be translated they translate it on the fly mm. and it becomes native in those languages over over time so how does a landlord in asia for example indonesia i own a villa i want to get myself list on airbnb how do they approach you to get it done? so the way the way we do it is pretty much like any marketplace we allow people to use their app or the website to just list their space so it takes anything from 15 to 30 minutes, depending on how uh, tech savvy you are, to put up photos. I think the, the main thing is really around the photos, profile description, uh, verification for your, of your phone number and your details, uh, and information about the amenities and what you provide. And, and then you're, up, uh, you're ready to go. Essentially, you can, you can list the space within 15 to 30 minutes. So do you like getting a lot, a lot lots, of, lots of more people these days just signing up very quickly to sort of list their homes and villas? We're finding, we're finding good. We're finding good traction in uh, in the region. The we find that in Asia it takes a bit more hand holding sometimes. So people who typically have the space, extra space at home, are not necessarily as tax heavy uh, as elsewhere. So there is a need for a little bit more education work, a little more hand holding. So in in Asia, for example, we do we do things like uh, seminars or uh, meetups for hosts or what what would be hosts to come and join us the team will actually show them how, how it's done. Mm. So actually there's a lot of onboarding actually required to actually get the the get the landlords or kind of your customers to get on board. Yeah, so for, for hosts to come on board, we, we try to make the product as simple and easy to use as possible. Especially when you use the phone, it's actually super easy because it's got mm. GPS, you can tag your location, it's got a camera, you can take photos. So it's all in one. But even then, you know, we find that like there is some handholding needed. So just a very curious question, is it very important to get professional photographers to take pictures of your um, In the early days we found that like, it's super important and I, th- I think it's still important. I think the point is that like you need to have good photos. 
do you need a professional photography? I think it's interesting to note that like over time as um, phone cameras have gotten better and people are actually getting are getting better as, as photographers as well. You know, that the gap between a professional for professionally taken photo by one of our pro photo photographers versus uh, someone who's who has a good eye and has a good camera, good phone, is uh, is narrowing. Mm. So how do you usually go into a city? You go into a city by first sourcing for potential um, hosts first, or do you kind of look at the demand from yeah. the customers? We we have a global network. So what we find is that travelers go around the world in uh, different different cities. When we say we go into a city, typically that means for us because on the demand side it's pretty easy. You just get go online and you find a place. You know we can reach them through many ways, uh, online advertising and so on. When we say going to a city, it typically means building up supply within city, so that it becomes a another destination you can travel on Airbnb. So in most cities across Asia, whether it's Bangkok, Chiang Mai, and all, you you can find a good mass of uh, supply now. But if you go to smaller cities, you know imagine a place like Bandung, for example or a place like Hoi An in uh, Vietnam, uh, we don't necessarily have enough supply there. So that's where we send a, send a team in, in to uh, build supply. Moving away from the landlords, I'm talking about the normal customers, you and myself, you know, we travelers, we travel all over. Yeah. So um, what is kind of the customer demographic coming to Asia? I mean, I mean, do you see more non-Asian travelers, like for example, people coming from Europe and US looking for Airbnb, or do you see more local Asians, even like myself, travel to China looking okay. for Airbnb on that? Yeah, in the, in the early days, it used to be simply because of our history, right? So we started out with a US company, uh, moved into Europe, and then moving into Asia. We found that in the early days, it was mostly European travelers and uh, American travelers coming to destinations like Bali, Bangkok, Kuala Lumpur, uh, Tokyo. What we find now is that like, as, we spe- uh, as people know about Airbnb within the region, we find a lot more intra-Asia travel. So people are traveling uh, from destinations in Asia to other destinations within Asia. And, and if you look across like travel patterns, we expect this to continue. Mm. So you actually have a very good sense about the traveling pattern patterns within Asia itself, wouldn't it? Would you get? Would you just kind of like understand like where travelers tend to go to? Yeah, we have a, and we you have try a, to try to bridge services around for them so that they can actually have the full experience. Yeah, we have uh, we have decent understanding of which are the big destinations and which are the big places where people travel out from. Mm. Uh, it's not you know this are uh, a lot of travel. The, yeah. the travel industry is well researched, so there's tons of information on mm. this. I, I guess the most challenging thing about uh, Airbnb is actually dealing with regulation. I think I remember when we met two years ago in Echelon conference and we were discussing this question about you know different governments. I think because uh, different countries set off with different legislation that they don't allow landlords to lease their apartments within a certain period of time or you know there are certain other very nuanced legislation that maybe because the internet economy, they were not ready for the internet economy. So for Airbnb, it's, it's, a, real ch- it's a challenge in each of these jurisdictions. Yeah. How do you actually work with them? I think in the past, in the past two years, there's been uh, quite a lot of progress on that front. Like you mentioned, a, a lot of rules are set up not to, not to stop businesses at Airbnb. The idea was to set up for, for different purposes. Yeah. Right now that we have a new uh, business model and a new kind of economy in place, what we find is like, you know, most cities that have spent time to uh, look into this and understand the benefits of it have changed their rules for the better. So if you look at cities like Hamburg, all of France, Amsterdam, San Francisco, uh, and most recently London actually, uh, they've all changed the rules to allow uh, short-term rentals and 
home sharing uh, in a positive way. So allow allowing people to do it in a very uh, seamless way. I think in in London, for example, you can if it's your home, you can rent it out. You don't need any permit or anything. If it's your secondary home, uh, then there are typically a bit more rules. You need to file for a license and so on. But you know, if it's your own home and you want to share it, uh, it's typically uh, quite mm. straightforward. Was, was it easy, let's say for example, you work in any of these Asian cities, the same kind of rules that you are also trying to work towards, trying to make some small changes to the rules so that to allow the host to be able to... So I think this is a bit more driven by the, the governments. What, what we find really positive now is that a lot of cities in Asia are um, a lot more progressive. So they're engaging, they're engaging us much earlier in the cycle. They are asking to find out a lot more information. So the cities are look, in Asia are looking at a few things that are interesting for them when it comes to sharing economy and Airbnb. One is you know, to provide spike supply for uh, spike events. Mm. Right? Um, last year, for example, when we worked in uh, Brazil, we worked with the, the World Cup organizers to provide accommodation for, for the World Cup because they couldn't build enough hotels in time. So one in six people who travel into to Brazil uh, actually for the World Cup actually stay around Airbnbs. So they, they see this as a great way in Asia as well. You know, we've got a few big events around in, in Asia and it doesn't necessarily make sense to build hotels just for those. The, the second one that's interesting is for, for them is really around the fact that it's a good way for retirement as well. Right? So if you look across some of the countries in Asia, there's going to be some aging, uh, aging population, uh, also retirement. Mm-hmm. So this could be a way where like, retirees could actually make money from the extra space while also aging uh, in place in a, in a healthy manner where they're more active rather than uh, passive. Um, there, are few, there are a few other ways, a few other benefits that we've seen around the world, but these are two examples of what they see as well. Mm. I, I think what I saw find it very fascinating about Airbnb is the culture of Airbnb. When I walked into Airbnb today, right. And I know somebody greeted me and had a very quick chat and I saw the nice world map in your office. All right. So we heard a lot about culture of Airbnb. In fact, I've also read your blogs and etc. Kind of what are those kind of core values, kind of the culture that that kind of inspire people to kind of work in Airbnb? Um, there are a few of them. They typically are mirrored against what our founders' vision of the company were are um, in the past, since, since they first started the company. Uh, we've done a better job of trying to be clear about this to the people who join and uh, in terms of how we hire. One big defining factor for me is really around the entrepreneurial culture. We are encouraged to you know try to do things rather than wait for instructions. Mm-hmm. So if there's something to be done, the idea is that like someone can come up and do it without you know necessarily requiring permission or requiring waiting to be asked to do it. I think that's one of the big things that. Uh, permits through through the company. We want to act um, like a small company still, despite how, how, how we've grown over the years. The other thing is just really around the culture of hospitality. So we, we are a hospitality company. So being a host to others is a big thing. So having someone greet you when you come in, it, it's a reflection of what we are as a hospitality company because we want people to feel, you know, we want our hosts to, to be good hosts and be hospitable. Similarly, as, uh, as a company, we want to be that hospitable kind of company and, and culture. Uh, so we see this across the way we treat each other, the way we work across departments, and the way, the way we work in teams, for example. Mm, cool. So I guess I kind of sort of get past the Airbnb part. I also want to sort of get a sense of, I mean, you work in the sharing economy. I mean, collaborative consumption is a very, very big area now, market in Asia. 
So what are your kind of perspective in terms of looking at the sharing economy in Asia with reference to Airbnb and how do you see the industry growing? I mean, there is Uber, there are, I think I haven't seen a good TouchRabbit equivalent, but I would say something like GrabTaxi, you know, you have GoGoVan doing things right. like logistics. Where do you see this movement of sharing economy moving towards? First of all, I think the, there's starting to be a lot more traction. You can see a lot more local companies coming out in this space as well, which I think is a good thing. The Asian cities around the world, around, around here, uh, actually have a lot more to gain from the sharing economy. If you think about it, cities around here have limited space. Places like Singapore, for example, mm. limited amount of uh, just land, right? Tokyo is like, places like Tokyo is like really highly dense. It just makes logical sense to make use of existing resources rather than trying to build more roads or build more uh, rooms and build more buildings. So I think better use of resources uh, through the sharing economy or collaborative consumption makes a lot of sense in Asia and should deliver a lot of value to, to the cities. Where the opportunity is, I think it's a lot more of a trial and error. You see a lot more companies trying different new niches, whether it's uh, delivery services, uh, transport, and even within transport, there are different models within, right? Like, is it car share, ride sharing, or is it car sharing? I think there's a quite a number of different models that that's open there. But I'm sure this is going to be a huge, uh, huge part of how how Asia is going to grow over the next few years. Do you see other kinds of industry starts to also Airbnb deals with travel, Uber deal and GoGoVan deals with a lot of transportation and logistics? Do you see other areas start to have this sharing market? being displacing into right. the traditional industry. We've seen the basic stuff which is around, you know, in Singapore for example, there's some smaller companies that try to do sharing of just equipment, right? Mm. Uh, so I think the, the, the company I was doing this, I, I can't remember the name now. One of the biggest things that people share or they, they rent out to each other mm. is uh, treadmills. Right? So That's right. <laughs> they, have, they have a lot of treadmills. People have treadmills, they don't necessarily use it the same way. Uh, but people want to go on, you know, on a six-week thing, they just rent it rather than purchase it. And typically, people have treadmills from the times where they you know, were inspired to, to buy it and then they don't really use it. So there's a lot of these kind of uh, things that mm. could be done, just pure equipment. The question is like, what's the right, what's the right value and what's the right thing there? Because at some point, the economics do not, does not work out. You're trying to rent, a, you know, rent out a thumb drive, for example, or, mm. or a speaker set. So it depends. I think there's some a lot more discovery to be figured out around like what's possible. Sharing economy is based on demand and supply, yeah. right? So there's demand and then the supply, you match them to each other. The economics of it actually is that there are certain assets that can make this demand and supply very effective. Yeah. And there are also certain economics of certain assets that may not be workable, like in your case, a thumb drive, for example. Yeah. So you're actually going to see that it's finding the right demand supply with the right asset that you can achieve get that particular market niche. Correct, and then, then, so that you can get the, the cycle going in the market. And I would say in Asia, the, the economics could be very different, right? The economics could be, maybe allows for, for even smaller value things compared to other places, simply because the cost of, you know, the cost of getting some things around or the cost of having someone to, to take care of something may not be as high. So that might allow for a different uh, type of economics versus uh, versus uh, Europe and US, for example. Mm. Yeah, but, but I think there's a lot of space in this. Everything from you know sharing extra office spaces to audiovisual equipment. There's a lot of a lot of ideas you can think about. Unfortunately, none of them are going to you know just like how Airbnb when first Airbnb started, they're not going to be obviously uh, a success. It, it takes someone to go out and actually try it out to find out whether it's uh, it can work. Mm. I guess so. So. 
in this is already happening in the US. People are talking about you know the US economy. People are moving towards a more sharing economy versus um, meaning that they're becoming more asset like. That means people just an example. People choose not to own houses, but they just want to rent out right. for the rest of their life. Culturally, do you think Asia will evolve towards that asset like culture? I think also part something has to do with cost of living in countries as well. Okay. Yeah, it's a good question. I think home ownership might be. Uh you know, it's pretty high up in the level of um, things that people are culturally deep set in in, in the region. Uh, so that might not that might not change anytime uh, soon. Um, but I think the incremental changes towards that should happen. You know, do, do people need to own cars if they can get from point A to point B through many different ways? Whether it's you know whether it's good old public transport as well, or you know your your car sharing services and ride sharing services. Uh, I think those will be the first few things to happen, and also. Just as level of education improves, I think people are also just more cognizant of the environmental impact of having more things that are not necessarily like well used, right? So people do not want to actually like, they're actually a lot more environmentally conscious about uh, their choices. So they think about these kind of things instead of like purchasing more things and owning more stuff. So I think you'll, you'll get there. Um, the whole ownership part will probably be the last one to, to move. It's quite a deep set thing in my mind. Uh, in, from what I see, but there's nothing saying that like you know, with the next generation, this will this will change. Mm. So that it would take maybe a longer time versus in the US where that that cultural change actually happened. It's a little bit like you know, um, digitization of paper. Despite right. a lot in the US, there's a lot of change of people moving from printer to digital yeah. very quickly. But in Asia, it's more a steady decline rather than a very quick decline. Yeah, uh, none, I think none of this will be instantaneous, but the, the speed is uh, speed at which it's going right now definitely faster than before. But none of this will be uh, zero or hundred percent wall. It's going to be a gradation somewhere in between. But I think that gradation in my mind should move towards you know less less focus on ownership and more mm. more access over time. I mean, you, you've been looking around the whole of Asia and the economies are now all uh, blooming. I mean, you see a lot of China has already bloomed in the last decade and now you see India and you see Indonesia. What are your views in terms of these large markets growing in Asia? How economies are going to change, the macroeconomics are going to change in the next decade? Well, I can, I can talk to this a lot more informed from a, mm. from a travel perspective. Mm. I think that from a travel travel perspective, I think the, the growing middle class is going to really have a big impact on, on travel. Uh, countries like Indonesia, India, um, the ones I'm most familiar with, where they are sizable markets today, but I think if you play it out 10 years out from now, uh, 15 years out from now, these will be the markets that people are talking about much more than uh, the traditional markets of uh, uh, Northeast Asian markets that people tend to talk about today. Mm. Okay, JJ, I mean, we come to the, that part of the segment. How do my guests find you? How do your guests find me? Sorry, no, how do my audience find you? Sorry. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, you can, um, I'm on uh, Twitter uh, at uh, JJ Chai. Um, uh, I'm relatively uh, plugged into that. Uh, that's the easiest way to, to reach out. Mm, okay. Uh, you can find me at bleongcw or bernardleong.com or you can follow us at our podcast at Analyze Asia A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia or AnalyzeAsia.com You could also subscribe to us iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud and of course reviews will be thoroughly welcome uh, 1 star to 5 star and once again JJ thanks for coming to the show Thanks Bernard